Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Jordan Blackman, and you know the drill. Every week, I interview a game industry expert, and I go deep with them on what they know to pull away things that are going to be useful to you in what you do, while also giving you a bigger, wider picture. This is a way for you to break out of your box, while also going deeper into your box. You might call it a para-box, or not, I don't know, but this week we have Alfonso Burton. We're talking UX. He is a master on the subject. There's a lot to learn. Stay tuned. So here's the deal with Alfonso. I was looking for a UX expert to work with on a project, and we ended up talking to each other, and I was so impressed with this guy that I invited him on the show on the spot. So the deal with Alfonso is that he has worked on several free-to-play mobile games that have broken the $100 million mark. He typically has several you know, apps in the top 100 grossing on the App Store at any given time. He was a UX director at both Glue and Pocket Gems, and now he's the CEO and creative director at UX Magicians. And they're a full-service UX design agency kind of deal, and they will rock your UX if you're looking for that sort of thing. And even if you're not, you are going to get a ton out of this episode because we talk about misconceptions about UX. We talk about what Alfonso thinks are the keys to a hit game, what UX really is, because it's not what you think, and uh, when to innovate in the UX and when to stick to things that work. We talk about Machine Zone and why their games uh, do so well, even though they're kind of fugly. Now, real quick, before we get into the interview... I want to say a couple things. One, if you haven't subscribed to Playmakers Insiders, you got to do that. Go to playmakerspodcast.com and you can sign up there. You won't miss any episodes and we have exclusives and you're going to find out how to ask questions in advance and all sorts of cool stuff like that. So head over to playmakerspodcast.com and become an insider. Also, if you're digging the show, if you're getting a lot out of it, please write us a review on iTunes and tell us what you want to hear on the show in the future, what guests, what topics. That is how we bring you what you want, and that's also how we know that we're doing a good job, and it's also how I grow the show. Really need those interviews. It makes a big difference. So for those of you who are doing them, I really, really appreciate it. And with that, here is Alfonso. Alfonso, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, having me on here. I'm excited about it. Well, you know, we had the opportunity to connect a little bit professionally, and just talking with you in that context, I was so excited by what you had to say, and your insights were so good. I was like, you've got to come on the show. So thanks for agreeing to do it. I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. So I know that you started in web and then made the transition to kind of mobile and game, and now like, you know, console game UX too, I, I think. What was that transition like for you and, and, you know, what were you kind of learning yourself as you go and what did you bring to the table from web? This is the thing about the web. The web taught us everything about how to engage uh, users or players, if you would, Um, because in the early days of web, uh, we learned about banner ads and the Mm -hmm. whole point of banner ads was to get people to click through and you wanted the highest click through rate. So we did probably thousands of banner ads. Uh, and then the point was to get them to the websites we were building. And then when they came to the websites, we had to keep them engaged. We had to uh, lead them through the website. This is all before it was even called user experience. And 
one of the things that we found in early web is that games were the things that were the sticky pieces of the websites. And so it, we got really good at, one, the acquisition of, of users into a website and then how to keep them there. I remember seeing banner ads. They were like little games. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we did everything from click-throughs to, hey, win this car to little games. I mean, there was uh, banner ads are still used a lot, but not like it was in the early days of the web. And uh, just learning how to engage players was huge. And, and it translates one-to-one in games. And so most of everything that I learned from the website of the business, uh, when we get into games, games is just more features. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the same way that you engage players. You just have a little more features to tap on. So it's a one-to-one translation for sure. And was there anything that, that you kind of didn't expect coming into games or that, that surprised you? Uh, no, because I've always been a fan of games. We've built so many games. We've probably built 300 games for AOL back when the Flash games were big. So we did casual games before they even called casual games. So when we got into the mobile space and into the console space, we, we, we love games. So we've always played them. We've always sat down and played them. And we're like, oh, this should do this, or this should happen, or this is confusing, or this is weird. So once we got a chance to get our hands on the UX, it was just like, do what we intuitively thought and it works it just started working games started going number one and you know making a lot of money and so it was uh, it was a nice transition and, and what about going the other way around like are there are there kind of misconceptions about ux that you've encountered over and over again uh, with your clients and on projects you've worked on this is one of the best questions in the world. I love <laughs> this question there is the huge misconception and this is the one thing about it Everyone thinks that they can do UX. Everyone. VPs, GMs, producers, executive producers are like, hey, we can do GMs. And I always relate it to this point is that you rarely see anybody go to the lead engineer and say, hey, I figured out the code. I know how to do this AI, right? It's hands off. They kind of just leave the, the, the engineers to do what they do. But they have that same thought about UX. And they feel like, hey, because I can see it because the color's blue. I want it green. Or I've seen it somewhere else. They know, and so the biggest misconception is UX is a process. It's a process of coming up with the right solutions, and and you have to go through that process. You can't just say, hey, do this, because you have no idea if you change one thing or you make something deep in a game, it can affect the entire product. And so that is the biggest misconception. You really need people that understand how to engage players in a digital world to create top-grossing hits. So in other words, people don't realize that it actually is a process. Exactly. And it's, it's because it's so easy to look over someone's shoulder, especially a UI designer or someone that's working on the game. They say, oh, well, let's move that to the left or let's move that to the right. Or uh, we, here's a feature we want to add. Put that button here. Again, we got why would that button exist there? Do we need that button there? You know, and, and it's uh, there's a long process of testing and putting it in and testing again with live users to really figure out if it makes sense to be there. And those who don't do that typically don't reach the top 150 grossing in mobile. That's interesting because, yeah, one of the things I'm, I, I also wanted to ask you about was sort of best practice versus innovation. And talking about it as a process, I think, shows the, kind of where I think you might go right. in terms of, you know, you, you can't answer that in abstraction. It's, it's sort of about the process of, of testing. And that's the one thing I love about UX. It is a process. It's an architectural process. It is like engineering something. And there's a core pillars. And if you just do the process, it works. And so uh, for, for us, what we've seen over the number of years, um, you know, having 11 top grossing games and two still sit in the top 100 grossing uh, right now is that there's three core pillars to creating a hit. 
Um, first, it's got to be fun. You, you got to tell us what they are. I yeah, mean, yeah, come yeah. on. So first pillar is it's got to be fun. You've got to have a fun core mechanic. Um, if you have a fun game, it is so much easier to make money with a fun game. Um, so that's, and and that's, let's say you got a team and like a couple people think it's fun, a couple people don't think it's fun. How do we decide? Well, it's all about testing. So it's, it's all about numbers, right? So if you have four people and it's half and half, well, you got to get some more people in the room. Um, hopefully you can get a couple thousand into the game uh, with some simple tests or even a few hundred um, into the game. And, and, and again, if you have really good designers and people on your team, you can tell if the game is fun or not. You know, there's some bit to it. You know, if it's that, you know, split down the middle, user testing will tell you everything. Uh, just put it in the hands of some strangers, and they'll they'll tell you the truth about your game. And so that's a that's a core pillar of doing that. The second pillar is a deep economy. I can't stress enough. You have to allow players to be able to invest deeply. You know what a great game was is uh, Smashing Roads. You ever played Smashing Roads? think for about a minute there you go that's a great point one of the funnest games ever smashing roads it kind of takes like the gta mechanic of getting chased around um and it's a fun game it's a great core mechanic but it doesn't have any deep monetization strategy to it you just buy premium cars and you just keep buying the new car that gets old after a while and feels so, like a toy rather than a, than a game that's exactly right so it shot up to the chart because it was fun but then it's nowhere to be found mm -hmm. because there is just nothing there to sustain the game as a business. So you need deep economy, and that's a, there's a lot to that as well. The third thing is great UI UX, and that's where we come in, is that if you have a great economy and yet players can't access that deep economy because it's confusing or it's all over the place or it's just ugly, no one's ever going to play your deep economy. So you have to have great UI UX to access all those wonderful features. And so that's why UI UX is so important is that I tell people all the time, nobody comes into a game and says, hey, your code looks fantastic. No one cares about the code. You don't see it. No one ever comes in and says, hey, your deep systems are fantastic. No one says that either. They either say it's beautiful and it works well or it does not. And so that's why UI UX is so important to get it right. Right. And, and, you know, we're in a world now where, you know, the free games that people download on their phone have budgets in the multi-million dollars. Right. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the ways you can at least you can at least compete is to have a beautiful looking uh, UI and UX. It's so it's so true. And, and, the, and the, tr the, the tricky part about it is that you spend, let's say, a few million dollars on a game and you're literally giving it away for free. You had better make sure that that UI UX and that gameplay is fun and you have a, a deep enough economy or, you know, you're going to be closing your doors pretty quickly being that you're not going to make any money. You know, this term UX, I've always thought it kind of funny because what isn't UX? What is not part of the user experience? So that's, that's a great question, right? So the user experience is everything. How I coin it, I look at it like this. When players put your game down and they walk away. Do they think about your game again? That's a good experience. Mm -hmm. So everything within that game was the experience. A lot of times when we're doing consulting, it is very siloed and they say, hey, we just want you to focus on the UI or we want you to focus on the flow. But we know as designers and UX experts that it is everything. And so um, part of what we do is we'll talk about the sound, we'll talk about the economy, we'll talk about the game balancing, we'll talk about the fun of the game. And so even though we, we are very focused narrowly on the overall flow, we focus narrowly on uh, the overall UI, we definitely know if it's fun and we definitely know if the economy is deep or it's right or it's going to make money. And so UX is very broad. 
Uh, but when you when boots on the ground, you know it, it can be very narrow as far as just doing UI, doing buttons, doing interface transitions, and then doing the overall flow how you get from one page to the next. I have to ask you a little bit more about UX process. So you've you've given us the three keys to succeed from your point of view, which is awesome. What is your perspective on the process of of UX? How would you lay that out? It's a fantastic question. It's tried and true. I will tell you the secrets of the magic men right here. Nice. So if you have a project and you're going to do the UI UX, the first thing we always say is figure out what it's going to look like first. The game design could be being figured out. The economy can be figured out. They're still working on the gameplay. Uh, but if you come in and you figure out what the game is going to look like, all the buttons, the theme, and the style, you have a locked product. Then once you have that locked style, and what we do is go to two or three different styles. We already know. We're not going to try to come out the first time and say, hey, here it is. It's the first chance we did. It's the first time we tried. We already know we're going to do it at least two or three times because you want to make sure that you've tried every idea you could possibly try. Mm -hmm. So you can choose the best one. You don't want to just do one and then try to edit it down until everybody sort of likes it. Get the one that everyone loves, not that one everyone's just trying to like. So like an iterative prototype style approach to UI. You, you have to do that. You have to do it. And I, and I say, and, and the thing is, you have to let the design process have its day, have its say. And it just takes time. So you want a lot that time because once you do it, you never have to pivot. So many games pivot because they get halfway through mm -hmm. the game. People get tired of looking at it where it didn't quite fit or it's too heavy or something like that. If you just do all the hard work up front, you'll never have to pivot again. Uh, the second thing, once you get your actual look and feel, then you start working on the overall flow and the overall layout of each every page. Because now once you do a layout, you can actually apply the approved des design style to it. So you're actually doing UX and UI at the same time. And a, a lot of teams I see, they'll do all the wires and they'll have all these layouts, but yet they still don't know what their product needs to look like. And then they hire a UI designer to come and paint in the boxes. The challenge with that is that sometimes design informs function. So it could literally change the entire page based on the design you're going to do. So you need to do those together. Um, and so that is the simplest process to do it. Uh, and it's tried and true. If you do it every single time, the ad agencies do it. That's how they get you to cl click on things. Uh, that's how websites are done. That's how apps are done. Um, now we're applying that same process to games. It just works. So the mistake is to lay out a bunch of wireframes and then kind of lay a UI over it. And, and the right approach is to figure out the look that the whole UI is going to have up front. And then you can move those pieces around kind of within the uh, for the needs of that specific part of the UI. Exactly. Because while you're figuring out the look, um, what we do is we take the hardest system in a game and we figure out the look for that. So now you have a look and you know how your product is actually going to work. Mm -hmm. Once you have those two together, then you just, just you apply it to the rest of the game. It, it's just that simple. And it becomes a, more of like an autopilot. You can actually hand it off to a more of a junior UI UX designer to carry that design throughout uh, the game because you've figured out all, hard, all the hard stuff front, up front. So it sounds like you know, you'd know you love it if people were, would call you up really early on in their development. That's one of the things. People like to call, hey, we got the game figured out. We got all this stuff figured out. And then at the end, they started calling UIX. We're like, okay, now we're painted in the corner. We have all these technical limitations and all these limitations. And so we love pre-greenlight. Like the sooner you get UI UX involved, the more likely you're not going to pivot. And so 
You got to get it up sooner. That's one thing I love about that we've seen as a trend in games is that before UI was an afterthought. Now it is a thought that's coming up front. It still needs to be earlier and earlier in the process. And a lot of a lot of teams are like, hey, when do we bring the UI UX in? Um, and I always say bring them in right away. I mean, we, we come in on some projects pre-green light just to create an overall look and feel to see if the executives want to buy in on a game. It's hard to buy in on a game you don't know what it looks like. But once you mm-hmm. figure out what it looks like, at least some concepts, you can start figuring out if it's something you want to invest in. And, you know, even even consumers and customers are experiencing things sooner, right? Whether it's Kickstarter or Steam, Greenlight, you know, so I, I would I would want to bring you in before doing those things. It's a great point. We've been on some projects where it was right after Greenlight and we literally come up with two or three looking fields and then we test them. I mean, what a great idea. Why don't you test whether or not the style is going to work early on? So that you know what you're working on for the next year is actually going to work. I mean, that is proper UI UX. And it's, it's a little harder for some teams to do more than others. More people are comfortable with that than others. Uh, but that, if you did it every time, your shots on goal and your percent chances of having a top grossing hit would increase drastically. Okay, so I asked some people in the Playmakers community for some questions for you. I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to be talking to one of the top UX designers with, with multiple games in the top 100. What do you want to know? And I got a couple questions from them. So the first one was actually specifically about the kinds of UI that we see in games like what Machine Zone does. Right. You know, and it's pretty ugly, right? And you think, gosh, like, couldn't they do better? Why don't they improve it? So, you know, what's up with that? I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, so first of all, you got to look at Machine Zone. You've got to give credit where credit is due, right? They've been in the top 10 for a long time. So when we say... Bad versus good, right? Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of relative, right? It's good because it's one of the most successful games that have ever been created. I understand what people mean by it's bad. Like if you get into it, it's hard to figure out, it's hard to engage with, it actually doesn't even look that very good. But the thing is, is that they built that game, and so when you first build a game, um, it is what it is. When you go to market, and their UI is a product of their success. Because everyone learned it the way it is, because everyone knows how to play it like that, if they were to drastically change it, um, you could piss the whole community off and that affects your monetization. It is a huge risk that once players figure out your game to change things. We've seen that in, in Windows. We've seen that in iOS. We've seen that in everything. If you change it midway after everybody's learned it, it's just frustrating at that point. So it's a product of their own success. And so uh, the best thing that they could do is create a new IP and try to figure that out. That's why I say UI UX upfront is so critical because if you get it right and then you're successful, well, it's right. But if you get it wrong and it's successful, then you're stuck with what you have. And then it's harder to have new players come into the game because it's just hard to understand. So that's the thing about the machine zone and, and other games. But look at something like Clash Royale, right? Phenomenal. That game is the funnest game ever. I was highly addicted. I just had to delete it off my phone because I was spending too much and it was (laughs) taking over my life. But it has a great UX, has a great UI, and it has a great gameplay. They don't really need to change it very much. There's still some issues with it that I I have some problems where they could, um, you know, they had to, you know, shoehorn in some features later on. But overall, it's a fantastic experience and it looks gorgeous. And so, they did it right the first time, and they don't have to go back and redo it. So with something like Machine Zone, you know, now that they're kind of stuck with what they've got. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, I tell you, I wonder if, like, 
it's sort of bad on purpose. Like, it's confusing so that they can kind of lead you through it the way that they like more easily. The only reason I don't say that is because I know a lot of the designers, right? I know them personally. I'm I'm trying to hire them. I look at their resumes. I see their portfolios. Typically, nothing is done bad on purpose. Things are only done quality as the person that's working on the product. So whoever it was that was an artist, they're a passionate artist. They love to do this stuff. They love to design. They've been in this business for a long time. And when they sit down and do a project... They're very passionate about it. So they did the best they could do on that project. Well, I don't mean bad on purpose, but like that the, the, you know, the multitude, the insane multiplicity of options on every screen, for example, is like, you know, creates a situation where it's kind of easy to say, but this is the one we want you to do right, right, right. now. Again, that just goes back to because they are successful, it's hard to change things. And because good yeah. UX is really a lot about categorization and how you prioritize things. And so... It's kind of like Clash Royale. Like it's a good UI, but you'll see some places where they just had to stick something in there because there was nowhere else to put it because they didn't think about it long term. A lot of people, when they build games, are thinking, hey, if it, if it lasts six months, we're happy. And that's the experience that you get. When we design games, we design it so that it would last 24 months at least. And so these systems aren't expandable because people really don't understand UX that well uh, or haven't done the process in the right way. And so they're just they're stuck with what they have. And they just I call it stickers. You just keep putting stickers in your game because yeah. you add features and you put it wherever you want. And by the end, you know, two years into the game, it's just like buttons everywhere. You know, Clash of Clans was like that. If you look at that, there's just buttons everywhere. Successful game. But man. I mean, there's a lot of stuff they just kind of stuck on there because that's where, you know, they didn't know where else to put the future. Well, from, from you know, my experience on Frontierville and Castleville, I, I can just tell you, like, any game that's a couple years old, UX experience has probably gone down in right. a lot of respects, at least if you're a new user. Right. Because over time, they just have to introduce new features, which means new buttons that weren't planned for and also just more. That's exactly right. And it's not just games that are doing it. any digital experiences like that like if you look at the new ios right there's some really great things about it but there's also some new frustrating features that got introduced because they're just trying to pack more into it and so you know that's a it's that's a that's the ux challenge you know of a ux designer is to get that right um it all starts with a good core though that's why you want to do it up front better create good systems that that are that are uh, we call expandable mm-hmm. or scale the systems themselves at a scale here's a good example such as a sliding side to side scrolling menu right if you have 10 weapons and you scroll left to right with that weapon that works because there's only 10 you're only going to have to scroll three or four times but if the plan calls for a hundred weapons that's not a good system to lead with. You need a new system and you need some filtering and you need some tabs and you need to be able to categorize those things. That's what I mean for the difference between one system versus another system. There are systems in UX that are scalable and some are not very scalable at all. So you got to figure that out up front. And you Uh, don't necessarily know. Maybe, Maybe you don't expect weapons to be a huge monetization feature and it turns out that's what ends up selling. So you're going to need to suddenly have a lot more than you expected. Well, that's where a good UX designer comes in, because if someone tells me we're making a game with weapons and their core monetization is the weapons themselves, they're like, oh, we're only going to create 10. I already know that that's, <laughs> yeah. that's wrong. I've seen it. I've seen it too many times. I'm going to say, no, you know, these are successful. This is your core monetization. So we need a system that's going to be able to expand because that's the only way you're making money. And so that's what... That's what I mean by the three pillars. You really have to understand all those pillars. You can't just come in and say, hey, I'm going to create something beautiful. It actually has to be functional and work, and you have to be able to think about those things. 
it would it would be pretty interesting for like um, machine zones. It's game of war, and then they have that mobile strike, right? Right. It would be interesting to kind of analyze the differences from a UI standpoint between those two games, like what they did from one to the other, uh, from what they learned. So yeah, what, uh, yeah. it's always good to do that. We did that back with the Deer Hunter and the uh, Dino Hunter. Yeah. Uh, we learned a lot from Deer Hunter. Deer Hunter went on to do 200 million plus, and it was a pretty fun game. And then wow. Dino Hunter, we took some of the, the learns from that and put it in Dino Hunter. Uh, and I know Machine Zone does the same thing. It's one of those things where you want to extend the games you have, your product line, but you don't want to break anything. Right. Um, but there are a lot of learns. But even if you play Mobile Strike, you'll see that they've adopted a lot of the problems that they had in the original game. And there's some things that are improved on. Uh, but again, I mean, I think that was a, a good opportunity to actually improve on the systems. Um, but I already know how it works internally. There, People say, hey, less risk right. is better. We don't want to, you know, spend all this money and not have it be successful. So usually you, you adopt those problems uh, because you don't think they're a problem because there's some success that's being generated. And so devil, you know, it's a great point right yeah. there. It's awesome. Another question that came from the Facebook community is when people think, especially on mobile, I think a lot of people are thinking about, oh, it's a bunch of best practices. You know, if I had a bunch of best practices and, and I think to some extent you've already pointed out, well, no, it's also a process. How do you decide when to kind of follow what's worked, like, you know, just like we were sort of saying with Machine Zone, and when do you try to innovate and do something new and different? It's a great point. It's a great point. I, I have uh, some good answers for how to think about that. So one is that there is a, a process of onboarding new players um, or new users if you're in the app world. And so the idea is that you don't want to have this whole story, this whole five-minute tutorial on how to teach them about your game. And so any system that you can take from um, other places that people already know, it's a good idea to use those systems on, on a kind of big global scale. Uh, what I mean by that is like the hamburger menu, for instance. Everyone knows what that is. You tap that. You might not know what's inside of it, uh, but you know if you tap that, you're going to access some other features, right? And that's something you don't have to train. You don't have to tutorialize. You don't have to have an arrow bouncing. Click this for the menu, those types of things. And so... It's like, why not use that? Millions of people use it. So when you use something like that, you're already getting access to a very broad audience to be able to know how your game works. And so you kind of balance those things out. Now, when you get deeper into the game and you're on some, a page like, hey, I want to socket a rune to my sword to make it better. Well, that there's no real core you know, standard system for doing that. And so why not create something fun, something no one's ever seen before, um, something that they can learn and, and engage in and have a lot of time. I mean, there's no sense in keeping, if you copy a rune system from another game, they're just going to go, well, this is just like this game. Right? And there's no real brand differentiation. And so that's how we look at it. If it's core flow and core navigation to get in the game and understand it, it's a wise idea to use systems that people already know. But when you start getting into the nitty-gritty gameplay, that's where you want to start mm. differentiating yourself and innovating and creating new things to do. You know, you wouldn't want to go out there and just copy Clash Royale's gameplay system. They've already done it, you know. How can you improve upon that? I have a similar way that I look at uh, design sometimes, which is let people play the game. This is for, like, mainstream mobile mass market stuff. But let people play the game without having to learn anything, make it really easy to just play and enjoy the basic mechanic, but then always add some elements that you're going to have to learn and study so that there's a depth there, but the depth is optional. 
That's exactly right. And that's why I say UI UX part of it is it's just access. You're accessing the fun. If I created a brand new type of menu that no one's ever seen or know how to work, well, now they, you've created friction to access the fun. It's just going to take them that much longer to get involved into your game. So remove as much friction as you can. Get into the game. Have some fun. Play a little bit. Then they'll be like, hey, I like this game. I want to engage with these other systems. And then they'll take the time to figure out how they work. So you mentioned to me when we were chatting before the interview started that you're just launching a new website. So I'd love to hear about, about that and what you're doing with UX Magicians and, and all that. Yeah, we're totally excited. So after several years in business now, uh, we launched our first brand new website and we are now officially a full service UI UX agency. And uh, what that means to us is that we can come in, we do all the research, we do all the UI, we do all the UX, but now we're actually coding. Um, Mm -hmm. Part of our process is that we've been handing a lot of PSDs to engineers and they have to kind of figure out how things transition and animate. But because of that, a lot, a lot gets lost in translation. So now we're just doing end-to-end. We're going to design it, we're going to figure it out, and then we're going to build it and put it into Unity or whatever engine that the, the, the game team is using so that we can control them that entire experience, do all the animations, all the special effects, all the 3D, all of that stuff. And so we got a brand new website showcasing that. Uh, I was super excited. We got a bunch of new projects that we did, like the WWE 2K17. Uh, now that we're getting some mobile and some other uh, – Games. We're doing a, working with a lot of Asian publishers uh, because they have a lot of hits over there and they want to bring them to the Western market. Right. So their UI UX is really different than the Western market. Oh, yes. That stuff doesn't work here uh, and vice versa. A lot of our, you know, the Western UI UX doesn't work over in Asia. And so part of that is is uh, surfacing that on our website that's saying we're doing, uh, you know, east to west games and games from west to east. So we're really excited about that. We got a brand new newsletter. So there's a there's a form at the very bottom in the footer to go and sign up for our newsletter um, so people can just keep up to date with what we got going on. And where do they go? www.uxmagicians.com. Nice. So, you know, one, one more quick question before I let you go, Alfonso. Uh, you mentioned 2K, and I know that you, you worked on the console version. I'm kind of curious. I know there's some things that you might not be able to talk about, but just in that experience and on, on making the transition to console, are your clients on console seeing the conversions and kind of the improvement that your mobile clients have also seen? Yes. Like I said before, it's just a digital product. This process works across the board. And so we came in, if you look at the, the 2K16, that, that version, it was, it was a good game. But if you go and try to play with some of the metagame and the systems, it's very hard and confusing to figure things out. And so we completely retooled and optimized the system. Um, and the, the community responded. We've got nothing but positive feedback on the new UX and how it works a lot better. It looks a lot better. And to the point where... You know, we're able to work on the next installment of that with those guys. And so it's it's pretty exciting. Those guys over there are very talented over at 2K. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really excited to work with them. And it's going to be a really good case study, um, especially as console. We believe and we feel like console is actually going to move to a free-to-play economy. And it's going to be great for us because we get it. We get, you know, old-school console. We get new-school free-to-play for console. And, uh, you know, it's going to work and it's going to drive more revenue uh, for those premium and AAA console games. Well, the, the sports games are kind of leading the charge in that in that way. At least they're doing sort of a premium plus, right? 
Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, yeah, there's there's still you know it's still UI UX is very new in games. I mean, you wouldn't think so. You think it, it was you know very mature, but it's very new and to the point where you know with the 2K, it was really the first time they brought UI UX in up front, uh, and it paid off uh, with dividends. You know, and and so now they're trying to adopt that, and that's one of the things we really want to do is we want to see that process change industry wide. Because we know it does work, and so and now we have some case studies to show uh, how well it works, actually. Nice. Well, thanks, Alfonso, so much for coming on Playmakers. I think you gave us so much to think about, which is awesome. I think people should definitely check out your newsletter at uxmagicians.com and uh, look forward to, to working together. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Love your show. And uh, thanks, look forward man. to uh, seeing more, uh, more great uh, people on your show. Talk more soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I had a great time in that chat with Alfonso. I hope you took a lot away from it. Alfonso's work is incredible. And if you want to see his work or learn more about Alfonso, head over to playmakerspodcast.com. And in the episode notes, we will have links to his company and to him. And you'll be able to take a look at his work and get in touch with him or get in touch with me. It's all right there. Also, the links to any games that we talked about go there as well. While you're there, consider signing up Playmakers Insiders. It's where it's at. We have a lot of fun on the show. We have a lot of fun in the newsletter as well. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week with another great interview with an industry expert. You've been listening to Playmakers. Playmakers.